Well, it is a blessing to be with you all this morning. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing Spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he write its truth on our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Lord in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to instruct us. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And we pray as we look to this text that he would be magnified, that he would be proclaimed before us this morning. We ask all of this in his precious and holy name. Amen. Well, I remember as a, a young child doing a science experiment in my driveway, and it's really the first chemical reaction that young kids learn about. Perhaps some of the kids here have done it before, but you take clay and you mold it into the shape of a cone, and you put baking soda in it, and then you add vinegar to it, and what does it do? It explodes like a volcano. As soon as the vinegar is added to the baking soda, it causes a reaction. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a Christian's reaction to the revealing of his own unconfessed sin, the reaction, the thing that's produced. It's not only a sense of conviction and remorse, but genuine repentance before God a longing to be restored to right relationship with God. And as we may already know, Psalm 51 is David's great prayer of repentance in response to the revelation of his own sin. If you don't remember the story of David's great sin in 2 Samuel, King David is at home in the palace when he should be at war. He doesn't have much to do, and he is in a high place in the palace, and he looks out, and he sees a woman bathing on her roof, who's known as Bathsheba. 
And he sins for her, brings her to himself, and has intimate relations with her, and then she ends up being pregnant. And this is a married woman, mind you, and her husband, Uriah the Hittite, is away at war. He's one of David's mighty men, so keep that in mind as you think about the the gravity of this sin, how heinous this sin is, is that he brings her husband home from war in an attempt to make him intoxicated to go and have intimate relations with his wife so that he thinks the baby is his. And yet Uriah doesn't go home. He doesn't feel that he can go home and stay the night with his wife when the soldiers are away at war. And so he stays the night at the palace. And so what does David do in response to that when his plan fails? Well, he sends Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield. He basically prescribes the murder of this man. And what happens? Uriah the Hittite dies. David has basically murdered a man and had an affair with his wife. And it's only after God sends Nathan the prophet, if you remember, that David responds with the Humble confession, I have sinned against the Lord. He's so grieved and pricked to the heart that what he has done leads him to write this inspired prayer in Psalm 51 that we have before us this morning. This example for us of genuine repentance before God. So while this Prayer is hitched to a certain man in a certain time at a certain point in his life. It's not so anchored or stuck to him that it's of no use for us today. Martin Luther rightly said that the book of Psalms is like a little Bible. Just like the rest of Scripture, it's God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching and rebuke and correcting and training in righteousness and Luther also said that no man could conjure prayers sweeter than the Psalms. And in fact, as I hope that you will see this morning, our hearts are not so different than David's in this passage. In fact, all of us here this morning who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ have experienced the repentance that David is talking about in this passage The Christian life doesn't only begin with repentance, but it continues in repentance. In seeking forgiveness of our sins before the Father by means of His perfect Son and being gradually conformed into His image by the work of the Holy Spirit. So this very prayer serves as a model for us. It gives us insight into the heart of what it means to be a penitent sinner. It gives us an insight into the heart of someone who is truly penitent before God. And perhaps there are some of us here this morning, like David, who have unconfessed sin weighing on our hearts and on our minds. We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the heaviness and burden of unconfessed sin tugging on our conscience. But truly, if we don't feel its weight this morning, don't we all have the same problem of sin? Do not the Scriptures say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that our righteousness before God is as filthy rags? 
Consequently, I, I think the question that we would rightly ask as we approach Psalm 51 this morning is what is genuine repentance? What is genuine repentance? What does it really look like? Well, I think our, our text here through David's prayer offers us with three parts of genuine repentance. Three parts or components of genuine repentance. First, we see an appeal to God's mercy. An appeal to God's mercy in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we see a confession of sin in verses 3 through 6. And thirdly, we see a petition for renewal in verses 7 through 12. So first, an appeal to God's mercy. Look with me to verses 1 and 2. As we see immediately here, David is appealing to the very character of God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What David's appealing to here is God's hesed. It's Hebrew for God's covenant faithfulness or his loving kindness. David's not only read of God's faithfulness in the Pentateuch, as you and I have in things like the Exodus, but he's experienced God's mercy, God's faithfulness in his own life. In other words, David's only approaching God in these words of repentance and confession because he knows, he's convinced that God is a merciful God. Maybe some of you here this morning have uh, taken a trip to the pool with your kids, or perhaps kids, you remember a time when your parents have taken you to the pool, but the little child, the, the young girl or son is too afraid to take that jump into the pool, but you promise your child you're going to catch them, and all of a the sudden, they're not afraid to jump in anymore, are they? They're ready to jump in to mom and dad because they trust you. And in the same way, David is a man convinced that God will be true to his promise to forgive those who come before him in true repentance. Indeed, some fathers have dropped their children. Some fathers have not been true to their promises because they're imperfect. But do you know this morning that our heavenly father has never, never forsaken one of his promises? And he surely never turned away a sinner who approaches him with a broken and contrite heart, who comes before him pleading the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does not our Lord tell us himself in the Gospel of John that all the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out? Do you know and believe that this morning, that if you'll just repent and believe on Jesus Christ, that your sins will be cast as far from you as the east is from the west? Isn't that what David is pleading for in verse 2? He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's not just asking that his sins be forgiven, but that they'd be stricken from all remembrance. 
never to be seen again. He's saying, God, make it as though I never did it. My friends, like David in desperate need of forgiveness, all we can do is cast ourselves before God. Cast ourselves before God, knowing that he's merciful. Forgiveness exists nowhere else than in the sufficient, precious, cleansing, all-powerful blood of Jesus Christ. Just as the Levitical priests would sprinkle and wash and cleanse those ceremonially unclean and defiled, Jesus Christ is the one who, according to Ezekiel, sprinkles clean water upon us so that we're made clean. He's the one who took upon himself our filthy garments, paid for our sin on the cross, and has given us his spotless robes of white. That's what David is praying for in this appeal to the mercy of God, the applied work of the Messiah to come. This morning, as we confess our sin to God, as we appeal for his mercy, it's through Jesus Christ that we should appeal for God's mercy. So genuine repentance, as we've seen so far in David's prayer, begins with an appeal to God's mercy. But secondly, and most plainly, what does repentance include? It includes a confession of our sin. And so that's what we see here in David's prayer, a confession of sin in verses 3 through 6. What does David do in these verses? He doesn't just acknowledge that he sinned as if God doesn't already know that he sinned. It's not enough just to acknowledge our sins, but to lament over them, to be disgusted by them. David says in verse 3 that he knows his transgressions. He says, I know my transgressions. They're ever before him. He can't flee from them. He can't bury them deep down inside of him. There's no hole big enough in the backyard to fill with them, to hide them. Imagine the conviction that David has been under as a Christian who has participated in the murder of a man and had an affair with his wife. At this point, it's driven him to absolute madness. He's sick over it. And as every Christian knows this morning, unconfessed sin cannot dwell in the heart of a believer for long without making us miserable. When David says that his sin is ever before him, it means that wherever he goes, it goes with him like a ball in a chain. It's clamped to his leg. It's this great mass of unconfessed sin in the life of a believer. Sure, very few people know about David's sin. He's done a good job as king covering it up. But the law of God written on his heart and his conscience are all crying out to him to confess his sin. Each of us have seen the detective shows. I'm a fan of true crime. I don't know if you are, but we've seen the detective shows where the suspect is under so much mental duress in the interrogation room that they're just bursting at the seams ready to give their confession. And just like that, when David is confronted by Nathan, this prayer flows out swiftly. It comes right out. 
If this passage would have us to do one thing, it would be to confess our sins to the Lord swiftly. Don't let them dwell in your heart for a long time. And then we come to this really astonishing part in verse 4. Who does David confess that his sin is against? Who's he committed his crimes against? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Against God. David has sinned against God. You might say, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah the Hittite? I think what David is confessing here isn't diminishing the fact that he's sinned against real people, that he's really sinned against real people, but he's expressing the gravity of sinning against God himself. He's ultimately, he's finally sinned against God. Friends, you can seek the forgiveness of man all day long. David could have gone to every single person he'd ever wronged and made due reparations, and perhaps he should have, but without getting right with God, there will never be any relief. We must not only confess our sins to the people we've wronged, but particularly to God, whom all sin is rebellion against. And what is our sin? What is it? What's so bad about it? It's surely not just missing the mark, as some people will tell you today, but it's an act of cosmic treason. When we sin, whether we realize or not, it's an act of autonomous rebellion. It's us wanting to be God. It's an act of rebellion against God himself. It's doing evil in the sight of God himself, as David says in the midst of verse 4. He says, and I've done what is evil in your sight. However, David is not just confessing his sin that he can escape the gallows, as it were. Christians don't just confess their sins to escape the judgment, but because they know the evil of sin. They grieve because they've hurt their father's heart. Do you view your transgressions against God that way this morning? David says in the end of verse 4 here, as you see, that God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment, not because he's trying to escape the consequences, but because he knows that he's guilty. He knows he deserves damnation. He knows that the wages of sin is death. He's not like a prisoner who laments his crime because he faces the gallows, but because he truly laments what he's done. He truly laments his crime. He laments because he's sinned against the very merciful God who has not rewarded us according to our transgressions, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But he sinned against the very God who sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He sinned against the very merciful God. This psalm is actually referred to as a psalm of lament, but there's one problem with that. There's no outside injustice for the psalmist to lament. It's not, he's not pointing a finger anywhere. There's nowhere to point the finger. 
There's no injustice outside of the psalmist. Rather, what David is about to admit here in verse 5 is that the problem is within himself. There's no outside injustice. There's no opposing enemy, no corrupt system. The problem is within the sinner himself. Verse 5 has long been understood as the proof text for the doctrine of original sin. And I, I believe rightly so. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Don't misunderstand him to be saying that his parents conceived him out of wedlock or something like that. That's absolutely not what David is saying here. But he's saying that this sin thing, it's been around in his life as long as he can remember. That even in the moment he was conceived, he was sinful. That when he was born, as far back as David can remember, he was sinful. But really, I think David's taking us even further back than that. He's taking us all the way back to the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam, as our spiritual representative, did what God said not to do. He acted in autonomy, autonomous rebellion against his creator, plunging man into sin and creation into chaos. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question 16, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? To which it answers, the covenant being made with Adam not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending for him or from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Meaning that the curse of sin is upon all men by Adam's sin, that all those descendants of Adam by ordinary generation, in other words, you and me, are just as depraved, born bent and inclined towards sin. We don't just sin in some kind of imitation of Adam, but we've inherited that very corruption through that natural, ordinary generation. It's been passed down to us. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that through that one man, Adam, sin entered the world and spread to all men, as if all men had sinned in the very place of Adam. Paul also tells us that that one trespass of Adam's sin led to the condemnation of us all, that we're all counted worthy of condemnation because of Adam's sin in our place. It's telling us that without salvation in Jesus Christ, we stand as sinners subject to the wrath of Almighty God. It's not that we were dealt a bad hand, but it's because of our very own wickedness. And David, continuing in this same vein of thought, in this last verse of confession, in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Firstly, David would here teach us that God delights not in outward obedience, an outward pretending rehearsal of obedience. God is not pleased by 
pretenders and formalists, but by true obedience of the heart and the inward being, as David refers to it, doing things out of our heart posture, out of love for him. Surely David is remembering how God had rejected King Saul. If you remember, King Saul offered these empty sacrifices to God, thinking that he could win God's favor. And it didn't work, did it? God rejected Saul. In the same way, I think nominal Christianity today operates in the same idea. But it doesn't work. It may look good on a job application. It may look good on a college application. But it merits absolutely nothing before a thrice holy God who knows our motivations. And then secondly, in this verse... In verse 6, David is expressing this sadness over the fact that he's so preciously and intimately experienced God's kindness. He's been called a man after God's own heart, and yet he's disobeyed in these ways we've talked about this morning. This morning, we believers today should Ask ourselves, as we confess our sins in the likeness of David, as we've received such great grace from God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How can we go on sinning against him? How long can we grieve our father's heart? How long can we let those little sinful thoughts linger in our hearts and in our minds? As we've already seen here in David's prayer, genuine repentance isn't just something. It's not just the disillusion with what we've done. It's a turning from sin, a seeking to follow God with the fullness of our being. Taking every thought captive, covenanting with our eyes, asking God's Spirit to help us overcome the adversaries of the world and the flesh and the devil. So we've seen this morning in our passage that David's example contains an appeal to God's mercy, a confession of sin, but finally it includes a petition for renewal or a plea for renewal. We see this in verses 7 through 12. But firstly, notice this priestly language, the priestly language in verses 7 through 9. Just peruse that. It says, purge me with hyssop. Wash me. Blot out my transgressions. This purge with hyssop, when someone was no longer defiled, the Levitical priest would sprinkle this hyssop on the head of the person, symbolizing that they've been cleaned. Or wash me and blot out. These words are symbolizing the application or the effect of the forgiveness that David's asking for. The renewal from his sin. The spiritual renewal. And it's in these verses that William Cowper's great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood, rings true. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that without the shedding 
of blood. There is no remission of sins. And all this priestly language intermingled throughout this text is meant to remind us of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for sin with the means of animal blood, sprinkling it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to renew the people before God. However, you and I know that the sacrifices were just types and shadows, a rehearsal of the real thing to come. The real redemption accomplished and to applied to us, the renewal that David is praying for in our passage is only found in Christ. The writer of Hebrews also tells us that Jesus Christ is the one high priest who entered into the most holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. If we sinners this morning would find forgiveness and spiritual renewal, there is no other place to go than the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other high priest was limited by death and the burden of his own sin. But Jesus Christ is a priest forever. Having been touched with the feeling of our infirmities, understanding us, sympathizing with us, yet without sin. Secondly, David in these verses is asking here that God would restore him to his estate before He had sinned before he had committed the sin. Return him from the horrible misery of living with unconfessed sin to the joy and gladness before. And that's what we have here, an example of the agony of harboring unconfessed sin. David here pleading for spiritual renewal shows us the other side, what it's like to Spend time in unrepentance. As we know, sin as Christian, as Christians robs us of Christian contentment and the feeling of peace with God. It makes us feel as if our very bones have been broken, as David says in verse 8. And so we then come, notice, that it makes us sometimes even cause us to question our assurance. Notice David says in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David's not suggesting that he's going to lose his salvation or something like that. As we know, believers are kept eternally secure by the Holy Spirit, by the seal of the Holy Spirit. But he's realizing that in the midst of his sin, he's not grown closer to God, but he's lost some of the joy in the Holy Ghost. And he's probably also referring here to the the favor of God upon him as Israel's king. But he's not necessarily concerned about his role as king. He's focused on his relationship with God. That's really the focus of this passage here is his relationship 
with God. He senses the distance he's created by his sin between himself and God. He's crying to be brought back into the feeling of God's presence. I know that assurance is something that not just David struggles with, but many believers struggle with today. And many times it's not even because of sin. Sometimes it can be because of sin in our lives. But David, in the midst of his struggle, is really asking that God would help him to feel his presence, to again be assured of his salvation, to return him to the joy of it in verse 12, to know, to know that he knows that he knows that his sins have been forgiven. Don't you want to feel that way this morning, to know that your sins have been forgiven? It's not sufficient for anyone. It's not sufficient for a priest of a false church to tell you that your sins have been forgiven. But David and we alike really want to feel that assurance, to know, to feel the restoration, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, to again feel at peace with God. As I heard one Irish preacher say about assurance with God, that assurance is better felt than telt. He said that that was a saying in the Scottish Highlands. I think it's probably from Appalachia, so we can take credit for that. But assurance is better felt than telt. And so what I'm saying here is don't look to any vain hope for renewal of assurance of salvation, but look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ and what he's done. Is your hope in him this morning? Come and confess your sin to the one who will not break a bruised reed. To the one who the smoking flax he'll not quench. The one who gives rest to weary souls. If your hope is fixed on Jesus Christ, that is what matters. That your faith is in him. That you're walking with him. And finally, David asks God, as we see here, to create in him a clean heart. In verse 10, create in him a clean heart, a full transformation of his own spirit. As we said earlier, the Christian life begins with repentance, but continues in it. As we know, David is already a believer at this point. He's a believer asking to be renewed. And if you're a believer here this morning and you've been stirred to repentance by this passage, praise God that it's been written in the pages of Scripture that if anyone should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we've observed this morning in Psalm 51 verses 1 through 12, three different parts of genuine repentance, an appeal to God's mercy a confession of sin, and a petition for renewal. But I think this passage would have us make a beeline for John chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter 36. Isn't this psalm such a wonderful container of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, you must be born again. No one enters the kingdom of heaven without being 
born again, without experiencing regeneration, this spiritual renewal. And what does Nicodemus says? He says, well, how do I do that, Jesus? Do I crawl back in my mother's womb? Well, no. As we know from Ezekiel 36, God has promised to do this thing concerning his people. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So my question this morning, as we close, have you experienced the new birth? Have you experienced that transformation that comes only by the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you bowed in repentance to God? Don't waste any more time. Come and confess your sins to God and experience the joy of salvation. The all-surpassing peace of God that waits in Jesus Christ. It's not he's done 99% and all you have to do is give your 1% or he's done 70 and you have to give 30. No, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has done it all. Come to Jesus Christ in whom there's forgiveness of sin and the waters of life everlasting. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you this morning and we thank you that you've sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for sinners. Lord, help us to be convicted of our sin as David. When we sin, help us to be conscious of it, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would draw us closer to you, that we grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer this morning, Lord, and we pray that you would answer it. In your name we pray. Amen.